greetings. I'm Bishop Chester Wright, and uh, this is lesson two of the series, The Voice of God in the Church Today. Lesson one was powerful, not because of my teaching, but because of the content. So revelatory. We talked about uh, the place that hearing the voice of God has to plays in our faith and also plays in our ministry. So we're going to start this lesson with talking about the voice of our father and the voice of the father speaking to his son, the man Christ Jesus, and therefore setting the example and the pattern for speaking to us, his sons of God. The voice of God spoke and confirmed that the man Christ Jesus was his son. John 12, 27 says, the Father, glo- Father, glorify thy name. Jesus prayed that, and then the voice of God says, Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And the people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel spake to them. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. So God speaking is for our sakes, for our faith's sake, for our confidence in him's sake, for our ministry's sake. So again, to claim to be a Christian, to claim to be saved, and not having enough of a legitimate relationship with God that you can talk to God and you know he's listening and he talks to you and you know it's him talking and you can hear, then you have just undermined the statement that you are saved and that you have a relationship with God because all relationships are based on communication and communication is not communication. Unless it's two-way. So God's voice is very important. And when he speaks to us personally, the fact that he speaks to us is for our sakes. The fact he speaks through us ultimately blesses us and confirms to us that we're children of God. So listen to what Peter said about this. This is powerful. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory that said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. So the voice of God spoke to confirm that the man Christ Jesus was truly a son of God. The voice of God speaking through us today and then God confirming that word is being from him. He's not confirming our word. 
when we speak, he's confirming the, that the word that we, that we're speaking and that he's speaking through us is his word. He confirms the word with signs following whatever that sign may be. It may just be a witness of the spirit to our spirit. It may be something we all can feel. It may be something we can see. God can choose the manifestation and the witness, but he will confirm his word. He will bear witness to his word. If it's his word, he's not going to bear witness that our word is good word. He's going to bear witness He's not going to bear witness that we, uh, yay, yay, well, what beautiful words that were spoken. No. He always only bears witness that the words were spoken were his words and that they were spoken the way he wanted them said. No wonder the adversary tries to produce miracles, fake miracles, that those who are not in tune with God and don't know his word accept as real. Because he's trying to confirm that that fake word, that false doctrine, that deception, that delusion is a lie. Other people, is a truth. Other people, otherwise people won't believe it because it's a lie. So if he can falsely confirm and we can't discern that that confirmation is not from God, that it's deception, then we end up deceived and lost. So when God himself is doing the confirmation, he's confirming, I said that to that person, what they're doing and saying is me, and here's my proof that it's me. Well, when does that happen, brother, right? Every time I hear what God says and say it, there's always some kind of confirmation. I look for it. I expect it. Why? Because My whole focus is hearing what he's saying and saying it. And since he knows and I know that my whole focus is hearing what he's saying and saying it, I'm expecting him to bear witness to that. So, notice this. The voice of the Father speaking through the man Christ Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So I'm going to read here a little bit. John 5, 24, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the son of God and they shall hear and live. Why? Because the voice of the son of God is going to be speaking what the father said. For as, next verse, 26, for as the father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the son to have life in himself. And what is life? Well, we'll quote it later, but let's just do it here now for the fun of it. John six sixty three. Jesus said, it is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And so John 5, 26, Jesus said, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. And hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of God. And the authority is inherently in the rhema. In the rhema is... Faith in the raiment is power. In the raiment is authority. In the raiment is the promise of God's blessing or confirmation 
of that word, however he chooses to confirm it, whether it's obvious to all or only obvious to the spiritual, he always confirms his word. Verse 28, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth that they might have have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil under the damnation, resurrection of damnation. So did it happen? John eleven thirty nine. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone, Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus said unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? Then they took him, then they took away the stone from the place where he, where the dead was laid. Now listen to what Jesus said. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was bound about him with a napkin. And Jesus said, loose him and let him go. Did the word of Jesus resurrect Lazarus? You mean the man or the God in the man? The audible word spoken by the man resurrected Jesus only because, or resurrected Lazarus only because the man heard what the father say, said and he spoke the father's words with his mouth by the unction of the spirit. And that caused Lazarus to come forth because the word is the resurrection and the life. The words that I speak unto you, John 6, 63, they are spirit and they are life. Now, the Lord uses his voice to invite men to salvation and invite us to fellowship with him. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice, not my knock. The knock is only to give you the indication I'm speaking. But if any man will hear my voice and will open the door, I will come in and will sup with him and he with me. If you will respond to my voice speaking to you, well, I haven't heard the voice of God. But again, Romans 10, when he sends that preacher forth, or any child of God, with a word of faith that he's put in our mouth and in our heart, to speak that word of faith and release that word, when we hear that word, it will call us to salvation. It will save us. How about John 10, verses 1 through 5? Then we're going to read verse 16 and verse 27 just for time's sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not in by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, listen now, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calleth his own sheep by name and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, and he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know 
his voice. And a stranger they will not follow, but will flee from him. Because of what? For they know not the voice of, of strangers. Oh, wait a minute. What he's really saying is the stranger is speaking, but they know that voice is not the voice of their shepherd. So they flee from him because they don't accept, they don't receive, they don't believe, they don't embrace the voice of a stranger, only the voice of their shepherd. Then skipping down to verse 16, it says, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring with. I must also, them also must I bring. And they shall hear my voice. Notice uh, the sheep he's got now, they know his voice. But the other sheep he has are the ones that are not saved yet. They shall hear my voice. And I'm going to take the, the, the flock I've got now and I'm going to add new sheep to it. These know my voice and those that will hear my voice and come to me because of my voice, I'm going to add them to this flock and they shall be one fold. And there's only going to be one shepherd. And that one shepherd is going to have one voice, which skipping down to verse 27 is exactly what it says. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now, I'm not trying to take this very positive into the negative, but Jesus already introduced the negative with the voice of the stranger. If I don't know the voice of my God speaking to me, am I one of his sheep? If I don't know the voice of God when it speaks to me, am I one of his sheep? Or if I am supposed to be one of his sheep, then I must be wandering because I haven't spent enough time with the shepherd to have confidence in his voice. So maybe I need to repent and spend some time, invest some time in fellowship with my shepherd and with his word, both the word of his spirit and his written word, so that I have confidence in his voice. Uh, we find out in this next part of our lesson just how critical the voice of God is. It is absolutely so critical because all fruitfulness is ultimately dependent. All spiritual fruitfulness is ultimately dependent upon my ability to hear the voice of God. So if I begin reading with John chapter 15, verse 1, which is one of the most specific passages in or context in all of the Bible that really deals with the, the, the elements of fruitfulness, we read John 15, 1. I am the true vine, my father's husband. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the saying bring forth the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. Me who? Well, I am the Logos made flesh, he said. I'm the Word made flesh. 
I'm the one who dies for you and saves you. That's the one. He's the word made flesh. So without him, we can do nothing. Verse 6, if a man abide not in me, he is cast forth a branch and is withered. And men gather the branches, those dead branches that were not fruitful. Why? They didn't have a relationship with the Father. Men gather them and cast them in the fire. They are burned. Listen to this now. Here's the key. If ye abide in me, and my words, my rhema abide in you. That's how he abides in us. Not just by his spirit, but by his rhema. And my words abide in you. Ye shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Now, in the context of these verses, it doesn't mean you can go ask for a Lamborghini or a mansion. That's not what this is talking about. What is it that I will will? What is it that I will desire if we abide in him and he abides in us? I'm going to desire his will. I'm going to desire his word. I'm going to desire his promises. Now, This whole scenario is beautiful, and I I don't know how much time I'm going to be able to spend on it, but I, I, I feel prompted to spend a little bit of time here. Jesus said, I'm the vine, my father and husband. You're the branches. So how does a vine work? A vine has roots, and it draws the moisture and the nutrients from the soil up through the roots, up into the vine. And the branch is attached to the vine. And if the attachment is healthy, all of that life and goodness flows uh, out of, up through the branch, up through the vine, into the branches, and then out on the end of the branch, what happens? Fruit. So what's the dependency here? The relationship between the branch and the vine. That connection is where it all happens. Our relationship with God is where it all happens. Because if my relationship is healthy, then everything in the vine can flow into me. And the proof that my relationship with God is healthy is the fruit that will appear out on the end of me. The branch out there where everybody can see it. You know, very few people, when they walk by a fruit tree or vines, look at the place where the branch is connected to the vine. What do they look for? Whatever the fruit is that's growing out on the end of those branches of the vine or the tree. That's what they see. That's why the Bible says you shall know them by their fruit. So you know if somebody's got a relationship with the Father... Because he's producing souls through them. No, 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 brother. This is talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Really? So if what the Spirit produces is sown, what will it produce? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc., etc. Whatever a man sows, that's, that's what he also shall reap. So if I sow love, fruit of the Spirit, I'm going to reap love. If I sow gentleness or goodness, then 
Those are fruits of the Spirit. I will reap those things. But if I am the branch, and this is a grapevine, figuratively speaking, when I take that fruit with the little seeds inside that grape, I love grapes. (laughs) Wish I had some right now. When you take that grape and you plant it, and that grape, the seeds in that grape grow, what does it produce? More branches, vines with branches. This can't be talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Because whatever the fruit is reproduces what it is when it's sown. And the Father reproduces. God reproduces the fruit of His Spirit. But listen to what this says. John 15, 7 says, If ye abide in me, my words abide you, my rhema abide you, ye shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Verse 8. Save the best the last. Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. Well, the fruit that I bear as a branch that's a part of the vine, if it's sown in the ground, what's it going to grow? More vines and more branches. Not more Jesuses, but in this context, every location becomes a place that identifies with Christ as the vine so that more people can be saved. Oh, I didn't finish the verse, did I? Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. And that's the proof that you're my disciple. In other words, a disciple has fruit as the proof that it is a disciple or that person is a disciple. And it all revolves around the rhema. So when he says, if ye abide me in my words, my rhema abide you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. I'm sure this will be covered in a different uh, place in uh, this lesson. I currently, right at this moment, don't remember where that is. So I am looking it up right now so I can cover it for you right now. It is Mark chapter 11, beginning with verse 20. And I know this is in this, these lessons. I don't know where right now. It may be later in this very lesson. But the Holy Ghost want me to cover it right now. We'll cover it again later. Mark eleven twenty. And in the morning as they passed by. Passed by what? The fig tree that Jesus had spoken to a few days before. And said no man's ever going to eat fruit off you again. And in the mornings they passed by. Or not a few days before. But the the. the the next, the day before, I guess, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Peter, calling and remembered, saith unto him, Master, behold the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. Jesus answering, saith unto them, have faith in God. Now he's about to explain how to do that. Verse 23. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say, uh, say speak, 
unto this mountain, be thou removed, be thou cast in the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Now again, Rhema is not initiated by man. And I can say anything I want that I initiate, nothing's going to happen. But if God speaks to me, if God initiates it by speaking to me, Rhema, if I speak that Rhema to that mountain, it's going to happen. But I have to doubt not my heart that that was a Rhema from God and that I'm speaking in faith. Because if I don't, it's not going to happen. But if I do, if it is a rhema from God and I speak it in faith without any doubt, it is going to happen. But then notice, please, the next verse. Verse 24. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them and ye shall have them. That sounds an awful lot like John 15, 8, or 15, 7. If ye abide in me and my words abide you, ye shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. What things soever ye desire, that you, when you pray, believe that you shall receive them and you shall have them. So here we got the word pray. In that verse, we, in John 15, 7, we got the word ask. But what is that really saying? Oh, there's a word at the beginning of verse 34. It's called therefore. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Therefore is a conjunction. It joins what was just said to what is now about to be said. And since it's not just an and conjunction or a but conjunction, it is a therefore. It is saying in conjunction that what is about to be said is an a result or an application or a methodology for doing what was just said. What was just said? Speaking raiment to the mountain. So when Jesus is saying pray in verse 24, he's not saying ask like we think ask. He's saying for us to speak. But that's also true. Because in the whole process we're teaching about here, the word of faith, the spirit of faith, we hear Rhema, believe Rhema, speak Rhema. If I abide you and you, my words abide you, if, you, if you, you abide me and my words abide you, you shall ask, you'll speak the Rhema. And you'll have whatever it is that my word is that you're willing to say. Life is produced by the spoken word. Here's that verse again. John 6, 63. It is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. In what context? You see the colon at the end of the word nothing. The grammatical rule of the colon is what follows the colon Expounds upon or explains what preceded the colon. So what follows the colon? The words, the rhema that I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. Oh, wait a minute. Now let's look again at what preceded the colon. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. So this quickening of the spirit and the flesh doing something that profits nothing 
is all explained by the words that I speak, the rhema that I speak unto you, they are spirit in their life. So when spirit is speaking rhema, there's quickening, there's life. But when flesh is talking, and it's not talking rhema, nothing happens. Nothing happens. Oh, well, there is something that happens. Worship is made vain. Word of God's made none effect. And eventually, their spiritual death. Uh, that's all heavy, but here it gets heavier. Now I'm going to look at Romans 8, 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So sons of God are led by, by the Spirit of God. How are sons of God led by the Spirit of God? They're led by the voice of God. Oh, wait a minute. Are you saying that one of the key qualifications to demonstrate that you're a son of God is that you're led by the Spirit of God or you're hearing the voice of God and doing what the voice of God said to do or saying what the voice of God is saying to you to say? Well, we read the King James. Let's read a couple other translations. How about weasts? For as many as are being constantly led by God's Spirit, these are sons of God. How about the contemporary English version? Only those people who are led by God's Spirit are His children. Whoa. New Century version doesn't get any better. The true children of God are those who let God's Spirit lead them. It's important to note here that the words by the, they that he, the, the uh, being led by the Spirit of the Lord makes us a son. Those words are not in the Greek text. They were added by the translators. In a King James printed Bible, you will see that the words by the are in italics, which means they're not in the original. Therefore, it is just as appropriate to say Spirit-led as it is to say led by the Spirit. Barnes Notes comments on Romans 8, 14 with this. The sons of God as are led. Speaks of as that son is submitted to the spirit, to the influence and the control of the spirit. The spirit is represented as influencing and suggesting and controlling. One evidence of piety is a willingness to yield to that influence and submit to him. One decided evidence of the lack of piety is where there is an unwillingness to submit to the influence of the spirit, the voice of the spirit. And therefore the spirit of God is grieved and resisted. All Christians submit to his influence. All sinners decidedly reject it and oppose it. The influence of the Spirit, if followed, would lead every man to heaven. But when neglected and rejected or despised, man goes down to hell. 
The glory belongs to the conducting spirit when man is saved. The fault is man's when he is lost. Wow. Adam Clark says it this way in reference to the verse, for his minutes are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. No man who does not have divine assistance can either find the way to heaven or walk in it when found. The Spirit of God is the great agent here below to enlighten, quicken, strengthen, and guide true disciples of Jesus. And all that are born of this Spirit are led and guided by it. And none can pretend to be the children of God who are not thus guided. Now, neither one of those men are Pentecostal. I think one reason Clark wasn't because he was born before the Azusa Street outpouring in the 1800s. I'm not sure about Mr. Barnes. The point is, neither one of these guys are Pentecostals. So you can't say it's just a bunch of Pentecostals saying, okay, it's a bunch of hocus pocus being led of the Spirit. No, it's what the Word says. And it says it so definitively. How do we ignore it and believe we're okay? We must be led by the Spirit of God in order to be sons of God. We must be led by the Spirit of God in order to be sons of God. Listen to what Paul said in his discussion of these things in uh, Galatians 5. Galatians 5, 16, he says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Is that the reason why they that are... Uh, the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. Because in order to be a son of God, a pleasing son of God, I, I can't be given into my flesh and, all, and walking in the flesh. Now, if I do, I can repent and be, and be forgiven, but I can't have a lifestyle. I can't habitually be living in the flesh and be a son of God. Again, the righteous man falleth seven times and getteth up again. So, the scripture says if we say we have no sin, we're, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John 1, 8, 9, I believe, or a fairly close quote. So the scripture acknowledges that we're not going to do this perfectly, but we can't live habitually in sin. So the whole goal here is how do we live above sin? We live above sin by walking in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Notice what the verse does not say. It does not say walk in the Spirit and you shall not have any lusts of the flesh. It didn't say that. Verse Galatians 5.18 says... But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Why? Because Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love. I quoted this a few moments ago, or at least part of it. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against the, such there is no law. And they that are Christ's, have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, 
Let us also walk in the Spirit. This is the way. This is the lifestyle of the Son of God. For they that are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. They're the sons of God. So what is the lifestyle of the Son of God? Living in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, and not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. Zechariah 4 and 6 confirms this. What a beautiful verse we often quote. Then he answered, spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. So when I walk in the spirit, the spirit of God empowers my spirit to do what I cannot do myself. That's called grace. When the spirit of God is empowering me to do what I to want to do and to be able to do what I cannot desire or be able to do myself so that I can please God. That's called grace. And that's what it means to walk in the spirit. We are saved to be sons of God. So if we're saved to be sons of God, we're saved to walk by the spirit of God. We're saved to walk in the Spirit. We're saved to live in the Spirit. First John 3 and 1. Oh, how I love this verse. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called sons of God. We're called sons. But the question is this. Are we living like sons? Are we walking like sons? Now, some of us we're trying to on one hand, but we are not, we're not doing it the way we should. Why? Because a verse that I didn't have in the notes that we're going to read in Galatians chapter 5 is the verse that was between verse 16 and 18. And I'm going to read these three verses together. This I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Why is that a problem? Verse 17. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Because without walking in the spirit, without choosing the atmosphere I want to live in, instead of allowing my flesh to tear me apart, and me stay neutral. And in the, and I don't want to be the battleground between the flesh and the spirit. I want the spirit to win. I want the flesh to lose. But I've got to make that choice so the spirit can help me. If I don't, I become a double-minded man. And this is so shocking. James 1, beginning with verse 6. Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Why? A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Scripture says, if any man lack, lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the wind, 
a wave of the sea tossed with the wind. Let not that man, that one that wavers, that's tossed with the wind, let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. Why? Because he's double-minded and he's unstable in all of his ways. Well, what does that mean? We'll read these verses in the Amplified. First, only it must be in faith that he asks with no wavering, no hesitating, no doubting. Because scripture says, if we speak to this mountain, Jesus said, if we speak to this mountain and doubt not in our hearts, that we'll have whatever we say. So we must ask in faith or speak in faith with no wavering. For the one who wavers, hesitates, doubts, is like the billowing surge out at sea that is blown hither and thither and tossed by the wind. For truly let not such a person imagine he will receive anything he asks for from the Lord. For being as he is, a man of two minds... A double-minded man, hesitating, dubious, irresolute. He is unstable and unreliable and uncertain about everything he thinks, feels, and decides. That person is not walking in the Spirit. That person has no confidence that they can hear the voice of God. Listen to what the Bible in basic English says about this. Let him... Make his request in faith, doubting nothing, for he who has doubt in his heart is like the waves of the sea, which are troubled by the driving of the wind. Let it not seem to such a man that he will get anything from the Lord, for there is a division in his mind, and he is uncertain in all his ways. New Century Version. For when you ask God, you must believe and not doubt. Anyone who doubts is like a wave in the sea, blown up and down by the wind. For such doubters are thinking two different things at the same time. They're hearing the voice of God. And they're hearing the voice of the adversary or their flesh or both. And they cannot decide about anything they do. They should not think that they will receive anything of the Lord. And finally, I'm reading not a Bible, but a paraphrase. Because the living Bible is not a translation. It's a paraphrase. So it's not a Bible. But I'm reading it just for context. But when you ask him, be sure you really expect him to tell you. For a doubtful, doubtful mind will be as unsettled as a wave of the sea and is driven and tossed by the wind. And every turn, every decision you then make will be uncertain. As you f- turn first this way and then that. If you don't ask with faith. Don't expect the Lord to give you any solid answer. The word wavereth here is pretty strong. It's the Greek word according to the complete word study dictionary that means to be in strife with oneself. To be in strife with oneself. To doubt, to hesitate, to waver. Thayer says it means passive it's in the passive voice. It means to be parted, to be separated from oneself. In a sense, not found in secular authors, to be at variance with oneself, to hesitate, to doubt. And here's the reason why. Strong says the word translated double-minded means two-spirited. In other words, I'm hearing the voice of God, 
and I'm hearing the, this other voice, but I am not dead enough to myself and I have not given myself to God enough to be able to discern the two. So one minute I'm trying to do what God says, but because, oh, wait, 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 maybe this other voice is God and the devil speaks. And so all this wavering goes on because I, I hear the spirit, I hear the flesh, I hear the spirit, I hear the devil. And so the flesh, the devil using my flesh and knowing my flesh and my spirits at war with one another, I'm paralyzed so that I cannot do the things that I would, but even more tragic. God's work is paralyzed so that he cannot do what he chooses to do through us because we're too spirited. But if we walk in the spirit and we fellowship with the spirit and we live in the spirit, then we come to the place we recognize the voice of God. Double-minded or two-spirited Christians are immobilized by their unwillingness to fully give themselves to the Father and his oversight and direction. Such tragic words that the prophet Elijah said to the people of God in 1 Kings 18.21. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, he was standing there on the mount, 450 prophets of Baal there, and the people of God who had been following Baal. Elijah said to them, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Why? Because they couldn't make a decision between the two. Here's the deal. They, they convinced themselves they were following the Jehovah God. But they were also involving themselves with the worship of Baal. They didn't give, give up God holy and embrace Baal holy. They were doing both of them because their heritage was Jehovah. But the people of the land they lived in worshiped Baal. So they didn't make a choice. And what was the condition they were in? They were halted. They weren't making any progress in anything. They weren't going anywhere and they weren't producing anything. There was nothing happening. And when we are in a position where we're not get, going anywhere, nothing's happening, and God does, God's not working, and there's no fruit, it's because we are not committed to the voice of God. We're not surrendered to God and His voice enough that we can recognize and sell out to doing and saying what it is God wants done and said. So again, the Father has a solution. And even though we've already read these verses, we're going to read them again. For those who want to move beyond being stuck in one place spiritually and want to submit, listen to this. Galatians 5, 16 through 18. I just read it, but I'm reading it again. This I say then, walk in the spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one or the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the spirit, you are not under the law. The Amplified says it this way. Walk and live habitually in the Holy Spirit, responsive to and controlled and guided by the spirit. Did you hear that? 
But I, this is what it means to, to walk and live in the Spirit. But walk and live habitually in the Holy Spirit, responsive to and controlled and guided by the Spirit. No wonder if you walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Then you will certainly not gratify the cravings and desires of the flesh of the human nature without God. Why? Because you are habitually walking in the Spirit. And you're responsive to and controlled and guided by the Spirit. Listen to, the, to verse 17 in the Amplified. For the desires of the flesh are opposed to the Holy Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are opposed to the flesh, godless human nature. For these are antagonistic to each other, continually withstanding and in conflict with each other. So that you are not free to be, but are prevented from doing what you desire to do. But if you're guided by or led by the Holy Spirit, you're not subject to the law. Now, we... Same verses. But I say through the instrumentality of the Spirit, habitually order your life, manner of life after the Spirit. And you will in no wise execute the passionate desire of the evil nature. For the evil nature constantly has a strong desire to suppress the Spirit. And the Spirit constantly has a strong desire to suppress the evil nature. And these are entrenched in an attitude of mutual opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you, des- that you desire to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Galatians, from the Living Bible, paraphrase. I advise you to obey only the Holy Spirit's instructions or voice. He will tell you where to go and what to do. And then you won't always be doing the wrong things in your evil nature that your evil nature wants you to. For we naturally love to do evil things that are just the opposite from the things the Holy Spirit tells us to do. And the good things we want to do when the Spirit has his way with us are just the opposite of our, evil, our natural desires. These two forces within us are constantly fighting each other to win control over us and our wishes are never free from their pressures. When you are guided by the Holy Spirit, you need no longer force yourself to obey Jewish laws. Now I'm going to conclude this message here, or this lesson here, this part of the series. At the expense of ending this section on a negative note, our willingness in the past to be influenced by more than just God so that we can maintain control, our control, our own lordship of our own lives is totally unacceptable to our Father. Matthew six twenty four. No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. But if you'll permit me, that's not only true between serving God or serving the world. But it's also true whether following the spirit or following the flesh. You can't do both. It's called carnality. It's not spirituality. Those who are spiritual are following the spirit and they're not following the flesh. And even in those rare occasions when they do what the flesh wants, they immediately recognize it, repent, and try to get right back to doing what the spirit wants them to do. You can't serve two masters. Whether it's God or the world, or whether it's the Spirit of God or the flesh of man. Romans 6.16 Know ye not 
that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness, whether of the flesh or this world or the devil and his voice unto death or unto the voice of God, the reign of God that you become obedient to unto righteousness. Second Corinthians chapter six, the last text, beginning with verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and my daughters, saith the Lord. You have to make a decision. We all have to make a decision. Who are we, whom are we going to serve? We're going to serve our, the Spirit of God in us, or we're going to serve our own flesh and its allies, the world and the God of this world. Who are we going to serve? Well, I don't understand how to do that. Well, here it is. We've talked about it. We're going to continue to do it. Follow the Spirit. Or more specifically said, learn how to hear the voice of God. And let the Spirit of God empower you to do what he says and to say what he says. Walk in faith. Walk in victory. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Have faith in God, Jesus said. So he gives you a word and you speak to the mountains in your life. And God will move those in his time according to his word. God will do that and give you victory. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you receive this lesson and walk in the spirit of it, the truth of this lesson. In Jesus' name, amen.